Welcome to the PD Pilot Podcast. I'm Matt Heath. So with me today, I have Matt, Andy and Dave. Would you each like to introduce yourselves? Starting with Matt. Hi, I'm Matt Pennington. Um, uh, along with Andy, I basically run the plot side of Empire. Um, and also do, obviously, I also do the, the full-time stuff, the sites and, and all that stuff. You're responsible uh, for think... toilets, yeah? I'm responsible for toilets. That is my big claim. Although it's a lie, of course. Once Alison hears this, she will point out that, in fact, she is responsible for toilets. I'm, in fact, just grabbing someone else's credit like I always do. But hopefully today we're going to discuss game stuff, uh, plot stuff, design stuff, uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, and that's that's kind of uh, that's what I do in, in, in PD and in Empire, basically. I certainly don't need to feel the need to discuss toilets anymore, frankly. Um, with that note, on to Andy. Who's Andy? Uh, hello, I'm Andy. I uh, I arrange a lot of the campaign stuff for Empire, and with Matt, uh, I'm technically in charge of a lot of the plot side of the game. I also manage communities very poorly. <laughs> you manage communities, do you, Andy? Uh, very poorly. And with that, on to Dave. Um, I'm Dave. Uh, I'm one of the poor suckers who works down Andy's plot mines. Um, <laughs> so uh, I get I'm part of a, a very thriving community run by Andy, and uh, which gets run badly, as well as being Navarre Egregore, obviously. One off. One off. Yeah, this is back from maternity leave, um, and uh, brilliant. It means the tea production in Empire will go up quite a lot now that uh, she's back in the field. So today we're going to chat about campaign and plot and how it all plugs together. So starting with the things players might see, obviously coming up for the event soon, uh, Winds of War and Winds of Fortune will be out. Do you want to explain, one of you want to uh, take on explaining what those are for, why we publish them, what they do, etc.? I think Winds of War is um, obviously the thing that we all most look forward to. Um, it's um, all about uh, setting the scene for the campaign battles. So one of the key points of Empire is all the generals and peoples um, putting their military orders at the campaign. Yeah. Um, and that has an effect on the campaign world. The people, I think Matt and Andy, are putting what the orcs do. They do that without knowing what the players do. It all gets number crunched in a rather fascinating way, including by Graham, military, by, Graham by including what military units do, um, and then they get the results. Once the results are done, obviously there's been these big battles in the empire. So the point of winds of war is one to tell people what the results are. So when they go into that field, they know what happened, they know what the state of campaign is, stuff that everyone in the empire should know, and then they can work and report from it. Um, so winds of war is big chunks of uh, text basically explain the downtime situation i think there's a there's an interesting kind of theoretical underpinning to the whole concepts of winds of war and winds of fortune um that, that goes right back to the original game design for empire yeah. which is the, an idea you know the word we used when we were designing the game was reflection the, the the function of a setting of a world and the idea that it's continual and that it, it lives and breathes between events at the end of the day, no one really cares because what, what matters is what happens at the event. What matters is what's real is what you do while you're live role playing at the event. The downtime is, is ultimately functionally irrelevant, but it's it's 
relevant insofar as that changes in the world reflect the decisions that you made at the event. If, if the generals of the empire decide to go to war in the West, and that makes absolutely no difference whatsoever, then those decisions themselves become meaningless. So the decisions they make, must they must feel them. They must... Those decisions must be reflected in changes to the state of the world. The stuff the players do, and it is the winds of war is very much tied to the generals, but actually everything the players do must be that is significant and notable must be reflected in changes to the state of the world. And so between each event, there's effectively a big process of working out how the world has changed. And then once you've done that, it's just a case of going back to the players with the new state of the world. And then the exciting bit, the fun bit, is to write that up in an exciting and, and engaging way that kind of gets everyone excited and pepped up to the event. But actually, the underlying principle is that it's about uh, it's about reflection. It's about the world changing to reflect the, the actions the players have made. And not not all of those points of um, change will necessarily be reflecting Winds of War, Winds of Fortune, will they? Some of them will come out on the field. So, for instance. Uh, if player action at the last event had a significant effect on an ambassadorial uh, uh, position between two two of the states in the game, that will happen. That that kind of communication will happen on the field rather than necessarily in the winds of war. Yes, Absolutely. to do with the resources that we can use. An advantage that the wiki gives us is that we can work from an assumption that the majority of players will either have read the wiki or spoken to somebody who has. So we can hit large numbers of people for what is some fairly intense hours of work, but we do them before the event. And it only involves two or three of us working uh, back and forth, editing and adding adjectives. Um, Whereas once we actually hit the field, that example you gave of the the angry ambassador, that requires us to have briefed an NPC, send somebody out into the field to interact. Uh, And that's going to have a much narrower point of contact with the players. Yeah. I think also the, the key one from a player point of view, I know a lot of players stay up and yeah, we'll stay up till one in the morning waiting for them to come out. Um, I miss the Holberg battle. I really do. But um, I could taunt people for hours over thinking and wait for the Holberg battle to come out. <laughs> That's true. I did every time. No, it's fact that they care about it, but actually it means they can start planning what they're going to do at that event. You know, the game's very based in a politics um, and actually it sets that setting of, okay, what do we need to start doing when we get into that field? Um, and it means that instead of going from a blank slate, you kind of can start thinking, right, I need to do that. And then not always about this has happened. We've included, you know, ambassadors and stuff coming as well. Uh, yeah. Invites in there. Which is- so so that, that's a common question. Uh, certainly we get asked as Edgar Gores or if, if you're active on social media for um, uh, as a member of PD crew. Why don't we publish the uh, Winds of War or Winds of Fortune earlier in the... Uh, cycle before the events they're an enormous amount of work and and there's a there's a there's a a process flow you can't you can't start to work out what the changes of the state to the world are till you've processed the downtime because you've got to know where all the military units are going so every single military unit has an effect and we it's a bit like um, a butterfly wings effect we can't find the final state till we've got all the data yeah so you can't start the process till you've got the the downtime results processed you can't process the downtime till you've got it closed you can't close the downtime till everyone's submitted they can't submit till it's opened you can't open the downtime until you've got back from the event and got the computer set up and got everything 
arrangements. So basically, it, the whole thing simply takes, you know, it's a, a long convoluted process of steps that must be gone through. We are slowly pushing those timescales back and getting more time. Um, but that generally allows us to create more content rather than deliver things earlier. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, but but yeah, generally, there's, it, it's actually the timescales are very tight to produce these things. You missed out the other reflection, of course. Um, increasingly, we can't open downtime until we've worked out what happened at the event that will have an impact on players. Yes. Because we're very keen not to have any, to reduce the number of hidden gotchas that we include in the game. We ran a game where people were turning up to the event with no idea what they were going to find in their pack, and we're very keen not to do that again with Empire. So when somebody places a curse on an Imperial nation at the event, we won't open downtime until we've made sure that everybody who's going to be affected by that curse can see that effect as soon as they log onto their system. Which pushes back when we can open again. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. The the the, the more kind of commercial, um, you know, uh, capitalistic viewpoint on it is that this stuff's great publicity for the event. It gets people frothing and excited. And if you did that a week after the previous event, everyone would get excited for two weeks. And then they forget about it. You, there's a kind of perfect period where you want to hit, which is round about the last booking deadline. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. you want to, yeah. you know, get everyone really excited. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, we're a business. I don't think we've things. hit it yet, have we? Because we're still. No, because we, we aim for that. And we're late. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it's coming out this week, though, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plan once we finish ruining the game for all the priests the plan is to get on to winds of fortune and winds of war to ruin the game for all the generals there's an interesting um point i want to pick up actually again on, on theoretical concepts here which picks up on what andy said that that if you think about a small larp game that you might go to a classic kind of uh game you might expect that um you know, certain styles of, of games, 30, 40, 50, 100 players, you would get a brief before the event. This is your character. This is what you're going to do. And it'd be, uh, you know, full of detailed stuff that you could then role play with at the event. We can't do that on a scale yeah. with 14, 1500 players. That doesn't work. Uh, but what we can do is say, here is a dozen exciting things that are happening in the world. You can now go and create your own agendas based on these things that are happening. So in a way, it creates that equivalent of your personal brief for the event. Oh, this is happening. I need to put a stop to this or I need to take advantage of this. I need to speak to someone about this. It allows players who are proactive to have things that they think, I want to do something about this. It gives people agendas and goals to go into the events. And there's no doubt that we could send NPCs onto the field to systematically reveal all that data and information over the course of the weekend. Often that would be unconvincing. You know, if you're losing a war in the West, you kind of really ought to know it straight away. But actually, this stuff yeah. is about... The function of it is to give players agendas and motivations. It, it, it's to get them... Just get the event sort of going from the moment you turn up. I think another advantage as well is um, conversation. It's, it's a bit more lowbrow in some ways, but if I'm going to spend some time on that Friday night making small talk with people I don't really know so too well, and I want to meet new people, IC and OC, then I want something to talk about. I don't want to just sit there and tell them about my father's sword for the next four hours, because it sounds a bit dodgy, but if I can say, yeah, I was with Blackthorns and I was in Spiral and I helped General Carr kill two orcs because he's not very good at killing them on his own, 
um, then suddenly I've got something to make my character feel like part of the game and having a conversation rather than telling them about my father's sword, running out of things to say and talking about, you know, what I did down the pub last week. It also helps the people like uh, Aunt Jones, for example, who can't read more than 10 words without complaining. They have a role playing that they can do with other people who fill them in uh, on the stuff they haven't read on the wiki. Because obviously we, we, we enthuse about the Winds of War and the Winds of Fortune a lot. But I mean, ob- they obviously, are a certain type of player who likes to read reams of text. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's occasionally frustrating. People go, but I didn't want to read all that text. And it's like, just design your character so your you character, you know, <laughs> if you're a Navarre um, traditionalist who's out in the wilds fighting away from Anvil for three months, you don't have a clue what's been going on. But great, first thing you do when you turn up in character, you've got a cast iron reason to go and find out what the latest news is. It, it, it's... um. Yeah, it, 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 but so it's a delivery mechanism that hits, I don't know, maybe half the players. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, Ant Jones is very keen at the moment and uh, has just read a load of the wiki, so I'd just like to say that... Yes, uh, yes. Keep, keep, which, bit keep of wiki, which bit of the wiki, Dave, did you tell him would be vital and useful for his character, his warrior character, his scout, his assassin, to know about? He's not an assassin, he's a thorn. Yeah, yeah, which bit did you tell him he needed to read? Um, I don't know, um, I believe it was the, the important parts of Navarre... Uh-huh. Was it Magic. dramaturgy? Did you tell him to read the dramaturgy section? Um, no, I didn't. That would be unfair. I think I told him to read Music of the Spheres. Oh. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I've been unfair to you, dude, because Music of the Spheres is quite short. I'm not sure, but he read it twice, I believe. And I've read it three or four times as well, and I don't know what it means. Um, yeah. I think it's really good. I really like it. It's one of my favourite bits of the wiki. I was going to say, it's one of my favourite bits of the wiki. It, it's because Andy didn't write it. It's true. All the best bits of the wiki were written by um, so we. I think that is the only page on the wiki where me and Andy looked at it and went, we have no position of any kind to make any changes. It's to really this page. true. And I love the fact that last year sometime I saw on our, on our forums, there you go, Mark, I've mentioned them, I saw on our forums that somebody had combined it with runes, I think it was. That was a work of genius. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and done something that looked really good. And a couple of people who are who who know what they're talking about said, "Yeah, this is really cool." So I assume that it's really cool. But but yeah, music of the spheres is is a perfectly legitimate tradition, and I heartily applaud anybody who's using it to do their magic. Absolutely, uh, there's a group in Highgard who uh, new group uh, only started last year, and they they looked at the music of the spheres and went. Ooh, because they had a couple of musicians amongst them and they've got a whole whole extra of extra layer to their characters because of it it's brilliant it's lovely to see yeah. i mean um i understand at the pledge ball recently there was, a, there was a nice big dramaturgy ritual done i love seeing people taking the magical traditions that we've made and doing stuff with them it stops like, them being just words on the wiki i like chucking blood at people uh, yes yeah. okay that's fair <laughs> you're doing it in most of the pictures we have on the wiki you yeah, well, I do like blood. Actually, I use astronomancy mainly, but there we go. <laughs> Just to be awkward. Um, so, Winds of War obviously are about the battles of the campaign. What do the Winds of Fortune cover then? For those who've not dug into them yet. I think there are two types of Winds of Fortune, actually. I think we need to break it down into the, the two different... Because there's basically there's opportunities and hints, aren't there, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's fairly fair. Um, and sometimes one can be both. Um, but what yeah, so basically, 
there's a set of that are news that is just simply news that isn't war this thing has happened that thing has happened oh my goodness and and some of those will be responses to players actions you know sometimes if players have cast a massive curse on somewhere um i think well, andy could probably fill in the blanks on where was cursed massively this downtime you know we'll we'll, we'll well, expose that to a wider audience uh, through the winds of fortune, but then, uh, or some of them will be plot-driven. So, you know, you'll have uh, the players will have antagonised some exter- external force, a barbarian nation or a foreign nation, and they will respond. Uh, you know, and, and that will be news. Or you then, but but sh- surely all foreign nations are, 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 are love the empire and that the foreign policy is oh, going oh, really Asavia well. Oh, Asavia definitely so. loved the empire right up to the point where the Senate made it illegal to trade with them. But I understand that that was all perfectly <laughs> legitimate. Um, it's yes. only white granite that gets the blood of slaves all over it. The um, and that's an example. The players <laughs> probably stains or um, calcum's already red. <laughs> and then with the second type we have is the kind of opportunities. Um, Opportunities are uh, a significant element of the game has a set of social structures which are designed as a toolbox that the players can push and pull. You know, the, the Senate can order the construction of a fortification. They can raise an army. The Synod can excommunicate someone. The Conclave can do this, that and the other. So in theory, the players have complete access to a set of tools that they can use that way. But the, the any t- because the toolbox is completely described and, and listed on the the wiki it, there's always a potential for the tools to become um overanalyzed you know people will sit there and, and meticulously count what is the best way to spend every bean break it all down and go well we'll never use this tool because it's three percent less efficient than that tool or we'll do this or we'll do it that way and kind of over optimize that that the fun out of life um so th- if you suddenly turn and go, yeah, well, you've all decided fortifications are rubbish and we're not going to build any, but some guys, some miners in the, the north of the empire are saying they'll build one if you pay half the price, it, it changes all of your uh, calculations. It, it throws a cat amongst your over-optimized pigeons. And effectively, the goal there, and actually it's an idea I can come back to all the time, is this desire to prevent the players over-optimizing everything. Um we're trying to shake things up and make things different. This event to the last event to the next event. We're, ch- we're, we're changing the calculations of what is the best thing to do uh, so that at any given moment, it isn't the same answers every time. You've got to look at whatever is happening in the world and, and use that and factor that into your plans and plots and schemes. So opportunities are where we say, and they can be negative, they can be positive, but opportunities are where we give the players an opportunity, a chance to do something that they wouldn't normally be able to do, either because it isn't possible or it's cheaper or it's more expensive or they need to do something to avert it. It's, it's basically like a random event in the world that the players can take advantage of or can avert the catastrophe for. The random event thing is, is very appropriate because that's where we started from, of course. The idea yes, in, a, in a card game, there will often be a, a thing that happens that changes what you're planning to do on your turn, is the metaphor we use. And after a few games, you get used to the kind of cards that can come up, but you still can't predict yeah. when they're going to come up or, or what effect they're going to have on your making time. And to be honest, we've only done two big versions uh, of Winds of Fortune, two proper full-on ones, but I'm keen to make sure that we 
generate at least two wins of fortune every event going forward randomly using a table, preferably from a D&D supplement. I assume <laughs> roll master yeah. crit yeah. tables. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not roll master crit tables because they're too personal. I can't see a window of fortune that is the everybody fighting in the wars of war gets their skeleton. Not easily, anyway. Um, <laughs> something like four owlbears walk across Anvil. What's that? That different? No, that's very different. That's a random encounter, dude. But you, there's a lot of good tables in uh, in in supplements from the '90s, particularly that say things like you know a, a comet falls, plague ravages the land. Or there's a there's a terrible new type of parasitic fungus that attacks the owl. Because it also shakes it up for us as well, of course. Because we, uh, of course. we can get into a rut as well. So having the odd random event is nice. Weirdly, though, it's like those um, horrible... I say horrible. A lot of people like them. Very complicated German board, uh, board games you get where everyone is trying to win, but you also have that condition where you, all players can lose if the game happens in a certain way, don't you? And you get those cards that you turn over. You tell I don't play a lot of board games, can't you? You can, but I know what you mean. You're talking about that cooperative style, that style of cooperative game where there is still a winner, a winner, yeah, yeah. But you've got to work against the world because the random thing. And obviously, to be to be brutally frank, we are often looking at wins of fortune with a PvP head on. Uh, the ideal win of fortune is something that lots of people want, but only one group can have. Or that will allow one group to get ahead at the expense of somebody else? Well, it's all about, as Matt would say, if he was on the phone call at the moment, uh, levers, isn't it? It's all about that idea of um, we want to try and create plot, that, or wins of fortune in this case, that gets players speaking to each other, interacting with each other. But obviously the way to do that is have something that two different groups want, so that will create game on the field. Um, six okay. years or so ago, I, I remember vividly, it might have been seven, it was quite a while ago, it was before, I think it was before even we started running, uh, PD started running Odyssey, um, we had a fascinating conversation in a car down to a Maelstrom event, uh, in which we talked about the tendency of players to, <laughs> LARP often presents a scenario where you start off with everybody fragmented, and they have to come together against the bad guy, basically, uh, yeah. and we were talking, just we were just kicking shit around, about um, different ways to approach that. We have this crazy idea of everybody's crashed on an island populated by zombies uh, and are attacking everybody. Because you're creating that survivalist environment, everybody's on the same side to start with. And then our big trick was going to be, by the end of about year one, the players would beat the zombies. So the external threat would be removed. uh, And suddenly that impetus for all the players who've been all getting together for the good of the empire or whatever, um, that, that external threat would be removed. Uh, and it would be interesting to see about doing it the right. other way around. And that led to some of the ideas about Empire. The Orcs are an external threat that gives the players an, an excuse to all band together against the bad guys. But they're also yeah. a threat that is fragmented and that is that threatens p- different groups of people in different ways. Um, and so yes. we in the first year, it was very easy to see the players all working together as a, uh, for, the, for the good of the Empire. Uh, because they were presented with what looked like this major external threat. And then the peace treaties started uh, and, and the diplomacies, and it all started to come to a head last year in which we are, we are seeing, I think we're seeing, uh, a group of players who are used to all being on the same side because there's a dangerous external threat, realising that that dangerous external threat is not, 
is not the single threat they all have to unite against that, that other games present. I'm not sure if I'm being entirely clear, but there's a lot more of an element of I don't need to run faster than the Orcs, I just need to run faster than I do about it. That, that and I think that we will see more fragmentation in the game and more PvP as people get less concerned about the, uh, about the Orcs. Just to clarify, you're saying PvP as in politics and interactions, not stabbing people up in Anvil. Oh yeah, but nobody uses PvP to mean stabbing people up in Anvil anymore. Oh, sorry, you're Navarre, aren't you? Sorry. <laughs> um, the ones that are, interesting, that are really interesting to me at the moment are the Synod ones. Um, they've been quite yeah. exciting. Uh, I think uh, the Synod sank 600 of its Liao into dealing with various opportunities that were presented to them, none of which were... Let me just check this. Yeah, none of which were the world will end if you don't do this thing. Um, some of them were quite selfish, in fact. Uh, and it was fascinating to see how that has played out and the positive response we've had from a lot of players about letting the about the, the synod having opportunities to act as a as a kind of social change doing the kind of things the senate could never right. do with a the senate doesn't have the senate lacks the power to say everybody in in wintermark and the marches will put aside some of their farm to grow herbs but because of the way we built the game yeah. the synod can say we're encouraging everybody to do this. We're, we're revitalizing this tradition. We're sending our, we're, we're role playing that we're sending our priests out to encourage people to take up this thing, persuade people that it's loyal and proud and all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting to do those. Um, I'm hoping we're able to do more of those and more of them that reflect what the, what the players have actually done in the synod as well. I mean, one of the fascinating things about it, which some players may not realize, is although we're joking about random encounter tables. We actually spend time reading through all the Senate motions, the Conclave motions, the Synod declarations, all letters to foreign powers, missives to Eternals, all this stuff. We read all the plot debriefs about when people have uh, responded to people in that power um, before these are written. So there is stuff there which is new plot threads, but there are stuff which are ideas come out of Andy's head randomly, but also a lot of it's responsive. Um, now, you might not know who it's responding to, but there's stuff that players do. And it's not all about hats, although obviously getting the Senate to push something through is the easiest way to make big change. But there are other ways of interacting and doing it, too. You know, a harsh letter writing campaign is an effective tool. Yeah, I think the other thing that's, uh, you know, that's worth saying about Winds of Fortune and Winds of War, actually, is that LARP runs on enthusiasm, on passion. Uh, you've got you to be excited about it. You can't run an event and just feel like, oh, it's another event. You've got to be buzzing. You've got to be really... <laughs> we, ran be really in, we ran that game. You've got to be really into it. Um, and actually, the Winds of War and the Winds of Fortune get me really excited. I get, you know, you read them, I get passionate about it. It, it, it helps helps me get really excited about the coming event, you know. So it's not just the players. I think it's quite... I think- I think it's quite telling that a significant number of our crew stay up to read the Winds of War and Winds of Fortune. I'd being say published. one of the kicks I got out of last year was was drip feeding the Winds of Fortune out and seeing the players reacting to them on Facebook. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. Matt and I don't get onto the field a lot, so we take our we take our uh, we take our validation from the players where we can get it. Yeah. From a game design point of view, is there a part of the game that isn't affected as well as you would like in those Winds of War and Winds of Fortune at the moment? Is there anything you're looking at from a overview of the game and campaign? Force. Everything. Um, the, 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 
we've created a set of social structures, uh, the Senate, the Synod, the Bourse, the Conclave, the Military Council. Um, and we use those to create, they, they become an interface between profound decisions and the player base. Uh, one of the things we identified in our previous game is the players would make a decision but had no way to inform us of an organisation what decision they'd made. And they'd simply expect us to know. Yeah. And equally, we had no way to validate whether their claims that that decision had been made or not. So the players would say, our trade guilds have all agreed we're going to embargo Bob. And we'd be like, have they? You've no way to tell us, and we've no way to check whether this is true. So one of the things that the Empire design was about was saying, we'll create mechanisms that allow the players to clearly legally uh, within the context of the game agree we are going to war with the grendel we are declaring peace with the fool we are doing these things uh, we are enmity, uh, uh, declaring enmity on this eternal etc etc um and then the goal uh, well what we do is that we then collect all of that information up through our civil service um and, and we get it all on the wiki uh, so that the players can see it, but it's also so that we can see it, so that we know what's happening, and that gives us material to respond to. Um, and I think a couple of areas that we knew were absolutely crucial, like the Senate motions and, crucially, the Military Council General's orders, we've been really red-hot on since the, the, the very first event of kind of getting that information straight back into PD so we can start to analyse it and, and change the world in accordingly. Other areas, we've been really slow. You know, you sort of spot uh, later on that the, the Conclave have done this or the Bourse have done that, and we haven't been as good as we wanted to be at responding to those things and those decisions they've made. And, and that's been our fault. We just haven't stressed to our crew, to the civil servants, how important it is that they, they be banging on our door going, look, the players have done this. This is really important. We need to react to this. They, they've been kind of left and, and, and inevitably they ended up assuming that this only mattered to the players where of course that's not true it does matter it's really important to the players but if the players want the world to change then it's really important to us as well as the, as the campaign team yeah so yeah i think the the we, we're improving event on event the the the, the ability to capture and snapshot exactly what the players decisions and actions uh were is getting better and better every event and i think that's going to produce much better integration between the actions of the Synod, the Bourse and the Conclave over time than we've had to date. I think from a, one of the questions we get asked quite a lot as egregores, um, I don't think you probably get it as well, but um, is, OK, so these people with their hats can affect the world um, and they can put these votes in and they can do it. But that's only a certain number of people. How do we get involved? How can we, how can we uh, respond to uh, get involved in the game if all the decisions and all the opportunities are going to the, the high up people with these positions of power? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think if you create a political game, and, and obviously that's what we set out to do, then there's always going to be a bunch of people who are sat on the outside of that politics saying, I don't appear to be able to affect this. 
Um, and, and they're right. They're just right. They don't appear to be able to, to 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 affect it, to influence it. You're outside the political process and you can't find any levers. Not only have you not got a hat, you're not sat at the table being somebody making the decision. But you can't even find out when the meetings are. I remember going to my first big LARP event and the one thing I wanted to do was go to the big military planning meeting on the the, the Sunday night before the big meeting on the Monday. That was the that was my that was my character goal for the event. I'm playing a military captain. I don't expect to say anything in that meeting. You know, I'm not going to be a big enough important character. I just want to make it to the meeting. And I missed the meeting and spent three hours looking for it, but I didn't even know where the meeting was. Um, so I had no way to be at the meeting because I didn't even know where it was. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, there's no doubt at all that when there's a political, almost there's a political game, there's a bunch of players who are outside that political process. But telling players how to get into it is really hard. You, you can sort of talk them through basics. Uh, you can say, look, you know, the senators are there, the cardinals are there, or everyone with a hat is a player who you can barrack. And, you, you, you know, you, you're not you don't, you're not going to start with a seat at the table, but you can talk to everybody who has a seat at the table, everybody who has a hat and try and influence them. And your way of trying to influence the outcome is to try and influence those people. We've tried to make everything as open and transparent as possible. You know when the meetings are. You know where the meetings are. I didn't know when the meeting was. I didn't know where it was. But we, that our players will, you know, even if you're outside the, the Senate, you can go and stand in the gallery and watch it happening. You're not, you're not, you can't, well, I don't even know where this is happening. You know what's, what is happening. You know where it's <laughs> happening. You know who is, who is involved. And then the, 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 the leap they need to make is to go, those guys are the senators. If I talk to those guys, if I threaten them, if I bribe them, if I persuade them, if I murder them, if I if I influence them in some way, then that will help me. Usurp their vote. If I usurp their voter base, I, you know, if I, I threaten them, I cajole them. Uh, so effectively, um, the game is there to be played. You know, just like it was for me when I went to that event. It just takes time, and and there's that tricky bit. You kind of can't tell people how to play the event there's only so far that you can hold their hand before it becomes you playing the event for them and that's a really delicate balance of course we've we've made it more difficult by not having the hat wearers be npcs yes we have because an npc often has a goal to try and create as much fun as possible for the other players yep whereas everybody who's got the levers of power and empire more or less is a is a player who's out for whatever it is they find fun at LARP. But I think what's important is um, the voting mechanisms are in place. Oh, no, absolutely. None of um, the voting mechanisms are secrets. Um, <laughs> we, don't have a, we don't have a magic rock that decides which PC is going to get to be the High King. We have a bunch of PCs who get to decide which PC gets we've, to be we've got a, We've got a magic crown, but it's close. Yeah. yeah, but the magic crown is more like a little badge. We could have created exactly the same effect by creating a mystic badge that said King Rob on it. And giving it to the winner, Mars. No, sorry, we, King, King on it. And giving it to the winner, King Oakenbrand. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It is all in almost every case. The hat wearer is put there by yes. players, though. So, so, yeah. I think the the only obvious example that that's not the case is the boss. Except that in order to accumulate large amounts of money, in order to bit, in order to get any of the boss seats, you have to be put there by players. Let's let's be clear though. That's only uh, that's only a f- that's only a faction of the bourse, because the other faction of the bourse, the ones who get their positions for free, are put there by the players. Very good point. 
the boss is a fascinating one. It's it, it's um it's it's interestingly almost the longest game of our, our our setting in some ways. You know, if you're a senator, you live and die by a yearly cycle. Uh, you get voted in, and if you don't you don't impress people over that year, you may not get voted in again next time. The boss is a long game. It's uh, it's about money and powers and dynastic wealth. It's about the Rothschilds. You know, the, the, the people, the, the, the factions, and it is factions. You can't play the boss as an individual. The factions that are playing the boss game are trying to build and sustain over periods of time great empires of wealth. And that is, it's a long game. It's a long game. It's not a game that's played out in a say season. Or is a that the kind of long game that leads to uh, hyperinflation? <laughs> uh, it, it's... It, Hyperinflation is, is clearly a, an element. It's a butterfly. It's a, a rock thrown into your otherwise beautiful plans to make enormous money. The, 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 the winners uh, of the of the boss game will be the ones that can survive the hyperinflation, ride it out, and then survive the ensuing crash that follows hyperinflation. Um, I, I am, yeah, yeah. So it, it, the hyperinflation is simply a problem the boss has to deal with as, as, as they attempt to maximise their rewards and, and play their their political game. I was expecting you to be a lot more angry about that one. <laughs> oh, okay. You've ruined it by being reasonable. Sorry. So you're going to do a winter fortune quantitative easing? Uh, <laughs> allow the boss to put extra whatever the currency is. I don't know. Hyperinflation is one of those things that's 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 poorly understood. Um, it's certainly, you know, poorly uh, applied. There, there, there isn't hyperinflation in empire. What there is is a commodity spike. Um, if you look at the value of many common goods, herbs, mana crystals, it has increased over in time, but, but the increase is relatively moderate and simply reflects changes in market prices, market supply and, and valuations of things of what people's is worth. The bourse is a completely different kettle of fish. The bourse is a, a pool of money that is constantly circling around the bourse, desperately trying to retain control of these commodities. Um, and what you have there is is a beautiful commodity spike. Uh, you know, the price of those commodities is continuously skyrocketing as everybody with money spends more and more money trying desperately to retain control. It's a little bit, well, a little bit like you're playing a game of musical chairs with them, but they've got to pay 100 thrones every turn yeah. just to stay in the game. Um, and so the price of those commodities is skyrocketing. And everybody goes, well, that's inflation. But it isn't inflation. Inflation is whether that value of most goods go up. If the value of the single set of goods or a category of goods goes up, that's a commodity spike. It's a very different thing. Um, so it, there actually isn't hyperinflation in the game. Um, but but we, it's confused because people don't understand. the. the we the definitely problems. should have a, a separate podcast on macroeconomics in LARP. Uh, yeah, it would be. Which, which, which I'm not Which I'm not in. Uh, okay, okay. Um, uh, let's just bring it back to something you might care about, Dave. Um, yeah. The Bourse, I think, is one of the places where we have been most effective at banishing the dark shadow of fair play. Yeah. We, we took these resources and we said everybody in the game is going to want some of them. Most of the players in the game are going to want some. It's how you improve your own personal wealth. And it's also how you do all the exciting stuff like build castles and armies. And then we gave them to some people, players, and motivated them to gouge everybody who wants yeah. one. Yeah, because the the only way you maintain the seat and maintain your wealth is by gouging. Yeah, exactly. And we, we strongly believe at PD that fair play, or indeed, I think, any virtue taught by Sesame Street, Matt? Except the ability to count, of course. 
You say that, but a lot of players, Steve Cook, for example, did quite well without ever counting anything. <laughs> yes, my my, uh, my Henson principle: anything that you would hear endorsed as a hearty and good social value on a, on Sesame Street is probably bad for your LARP game. <laughs> because it's a design want, principle. Because ultimately, we want conflict. Yes, and we also know that we've got however many players it ha- is we have. I think at various points we've had something like 30 players for every NPC. We have, yeah, yeah. We have no chance of creating game if we rely on NPCs to deliver it. I'm a massive Henson nerd, so I'll give you a tiny Henson anecdote. Um, when he created Fraggle Rock, one of my favourite uh, Henson features, his goal in Fraggle Rock was to bring about world peace. That's quite an ambitious thing for a man making a puppet show. Um, you know, Henson was not a small thinker. He, he was like, this is a man with dreams and ambitions. He wanted world peace. So if you want world peace for your game, go and watch Fraggle Rock. It will tell you everything you need to know about creating a LARP game that will bring about world peace. If, on the other hand, you want murder, conflict, strife, hatred, bloodshed, furor. Uh, if you want to set people against each other, watch Fraggle Rock and take out everything that's in Fraggle Rock. Take those things out of your LARP game. You don't want world peace. That's the second time you've mentioned the contentious uh, element of murder, Matt. And we've got one of the of our egregores here as well. So should we... Uh... Just talk about murdering LARP and why we've... To, to, to be fair, I lost track because I thought you were talking about the Bristol Ex-Osprey Centre when you said Henson. <laughs> and I got really confused while you talked about the Fraggle Rock. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so we want to we talk about why we've taken such an effort to stamp one of the most common player-on-player interactions in LARP out of our game. Yeah, I suppose. I, I think it's interesting because it, it, it was interesting chatting with some players from the militia recently. And, and, and they were of the opinion, some of them, some of them were of the view that, that, that we didn't want murder in the game, that we didn't want it to happen at all. Um, and, 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 and that we told people that we didn't want it to happen at all. And I, and I didn't feel that was what we had done, although it is pointless to argue about what you did or didn't say. Um, the, the, the goal for us, I think, when, when you look at previous games we'd run and, and our, my analysis of of a lot of LARPs that I've been involved with, either as a player or as an organiser, is that murder is the single most effective PvP tool in your arsenal. You can try and rally people, you can try and get people to embargo that person, you ostracise that person, you can call them out in public, you can do all of these things, but in 99% of LARP games, the one that really counts is murdering them, and actually everything else, almost irrelevant. You're either murdering them, or you're not murdering them. And, and basically, murder becomes the single most effective tool. Um, anyone prepared to do it is the most effective person in the game. And it's just the go-to. It's the, it's the oh, we don't like that guy. Let's go and murder him. It's the go-to point of, of uh, people who are enabled to, and empowered to do that in most PvP games. It's just the simplest solution to every problem. And the problem with that is that you get quite a simplistic game. It's just like, it's a murder game. We're playing a political game, but it's not really a political game. It's a murder game. You just wait, and then at night, you and your ten mates go into his camp, butcher them all, and then go, ha, ah, they're all dead. That's the end of it. it everything, all of the complexity and the different strategies and the different ways to play the game, the different ways to enjoy the game, all kind of dry up and you're left with, yeah, well, if you want to oppose 
Dave or Andy or whatever, just murder their character. It's just the most effective thing to do. Yeah, but there's a, a certain amount of skill in, you know, I was going to say getting blue knees, but I was going to say assassinating people. Um, but, um, it, you know... I don't... Yeah, this is to denigrate murdering people. It's really hard to kill people. I think that, you know, an effective murder where you're not caught, you don't get away with it, you've got a perfect alibi, the person, you know, there's no reason, it is a skill, and it's a skill that adds to the game. It's just you don't want people doing it as your first um, recall. We wanted it to be the last resort of the desperate, not the first recourse of the, this is the best tool, the easiest tool, the cheapest tool, the best tool. Murder's difficult. I'm not suggesting it's trivially easy. Most of the difficulty is about having the, the guts to go and do it. Most of the difficulty in murdering people in LARP is just to have the bottle to walk into their camp, pull a sword out and start stabbing them. Um, getting you know, away you, with it... You know you can just hang around the toilets. It's easier. You can the just hang around the toilets. Yeah. It, 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 um, exactly. And... and People rarely talk about the Dunny Assassin with, with, you know, sort of misty eyes of how great that feature of the art that is. Um, <coughs> I, I, I believe in you. you, you mean it. The, 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 so the point is, murdering people, we wanted to make it difficult, as difficult as we could possibly make it. We wanted to make it a last resort, not a first resort. We wanted to make it something that people worked really hard not to get caught. Because actually, if getting caught costs you nothing if it costs you no social status if it doesn't risk your character being executed if getting caught if everybody knows you've done it and nothing happens as a result murder becomes a lot less fun because why bother covering it up heck i've seen games where people openly talk boast about the people they've had murdered because it makes everybody else more scared of taking on their character we ran that game we ran that game um so you know, and in that case, I think we and we actually want to create game for the murderers by making their life really difficult. We, we part of our job as the game designers, and this came up actually in reference to the synod, who are not, uh, you know, obviously not connected to, to murder. But but someone was suggesting some changes on the internet recently that would make the synod's life much easier. Make it far, 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 far easier for the Synod to do the things the Synod wants to do. And their argument was, these things are difficult. That's a bug. And our argument is, no, that's a feature. These things are deliberately difficult, A, for game balance, but B, for fun. For fun. If you just turn up at the event and in the first 10 minutes roll over to Dade's camp, stab him and go, up, Dade's dead. Well, that's my goals for the weekend. Might as well go home now, really. You've had no fun. If you've got to work your ass off to make that happen, then you get a real sense of achievement at the end of it. So part of our job as the game organisers is to make stuff really difficult. And and our goal with murder was to make it really difficult so that it was game balanced against other PvP strategies you could do, but also so it was fun. Fun for the murderers, because if you can just go, yeah, I murdered him, so what? That's fun. People want to be sneaky and get away with it. They they want and they want to be motivated. The, the to archetypes that. in you know the fictional sources we draw on aren't of somebody just walks over, kills somebody, walks off, are they? The, you know the assassin in that has a complicated the, the, the setup. The toilet assassin is 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 the archetype of the person who is killed, defeated, or beaten, or at very least scorned 
by the protagonist. Even the anti-hero doesn't have any time for the toilet no. murder. Yeah, but I, 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 I get what you're saying. The, 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 the narrative, the, the, the hero or even the anti-hero is the skilled assassin who, who leaves no trail, who is you know, a ninja who crawls across the rooftops and his, his victims never see him. I've yet to read an exciting fiction, fantasy fiction, about a group of people who were a band of muggers lying awake at night on the streets waiting for a grandma to come along that they beat up, steal her money and leave her bleeding to death in the gutter. It just won't make a very interesting book. It, it doesn't make a very interesting story. And it's just it's just a bit dull. Um we wanted to create LARPs that, that gave people exciting stories and gave them exciting characters to be by making the world challenge them accordingly. Okay. I think also you've got the feeling you're in an empire, of a civilised empire as well. And if you do get mugged on the street in the middle of the, you know, the heart of the empire, it makes the whole roleplay that this is actually quite an established empire quite tricky as well. Yeah. Plus we hear constantly when we talk about it that people don't mind being murdered as long as there was a good reason yes i don't always buy it but i would i'm certainly happier when i'm killed because i've been a twat than because some random guy just wanted whatever was in my lamy i think i think some people play to see how far they can push it before they're murdered Mm -hmm. yeah Um, that's their choice i think yeah to go back to your argument about the setting dave you're not wrong that if if empire was just a chaotic uh, anarchic setting where people just murdered anyone who got in their way and people were just slaughtered in the street for their belongings in their purse. The setting itself would make no sense because oh, the game would clash with its own setting. You'd be like, this game is not portraying the society it claims to portray. But obviously we designed the setting at the same time we designed the game. The, the two were meant to dovetail together. If we planned to run a, you know, if we planned to run Mad Max Thunderdome, we'd have written a setting of Mad Max Thunderdome. So I, I, I think there's a horse and cart situation there. The interesting thing is that... Just to uh, check, me- is, is that the next PD event, Mad Max Thunderdome? No I'm, comment. I'm, I'm definitely going. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, that's a no comment from me on that. And we got um, Tina Turner booked. No comment. No, but we know we can lay our hands on a load of Tina Turner weeks. <laughs> the... the, the, the the point is that, that actually, I mean, I, I was really excited. It's, a, it's an element of Empire that really excites me is I'm not, and, and someone will undoubtedly listen to this podcast and, and email me to tell me I'm wrong, but I'm not aware of many LARP games that have attempted to create a functioning society with a rule of law, uh, orders, rules, systems. Most games are broadly anarchic. They're broadly post-apocalyptic post a cataclysm we're in a field there might be a sort of rule that we don't murder each other and that's about it and that law will often be be visible in the in its absence rather than, than I, actually being enforced I'm, I'm just i can't be bothered to email because i'm talking to you now but i actually think fools and heroes is probably an example that does try to do that um yes you know thieves guild memberships are legal nighthawks memberships definitely illegal you can play a guard or a forester so i think yeah they, yeah it, but, but, of course, they've got a very different social model, haven't they? They've, they've got a, a functioning society because all the clubs around the country are part of the same setting. 
but but their majority of, of, of their experience is a PVM adventuring thing, as I yeah. understand it. And I, I you know I've never been, so I'm, I'm I'm be very careful. But no, that's fine. Fools and Heroes, good example. For me, I was really excited to try and create from scratch that that very detailed, intricate political world. But it also brought beautiful logical consequences. I was really excited about the idea of having kids in our game because I felt they were a coherent believable element of the setting if people were simply being butchered in the streets of anvil it stretches credibility that you would send your kids down to the marketplace to collect rings in exchange for flowers you're like no don't go to it's the marketplace people die there you, you know everybody your... would because you'd know that the kids weren't going to get murdered but you'd have to be playing that kind of well it's just a larp game you know, there's always an element of that, but but I, I like to think that that parents can convincingly play. It's fine to wander around Anthel. It's perfectly safe. It's as safe a place as any in the Empire. Um, so you know, it doesn't suit everyone. There's a bunch of LARPers who hate that element of Empire. You know, it just is not the experience. They want a constant sense of danger. Of you know, they they could get me at any time. And Empire does not deliver that experience. But it delivers a different experience for a different bunch the, of players. The other thing that decision allows is it allows lots of people to play lore archetypes they wouldn't normally get to play. A lot of those games that have the more anarchic constructs, you don't get to play the militiamen in, in, in the same way as you do in Empire. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the interesting thing then is how do you make sure those archetypes are fun? Um, certainly when we you know we, we first touted and floated empire there was a lot of people who wanted to play a corrupt magistrate um i, I think about one in three people had that unique idea um it it, it 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 is because we're used to corrupt legal systems in lot games because that's the common trope uh, and because that's actually a lot of what the, there isn't a lot of fantasy fiction written. There's a lot of detective fiction written about detectives, but there isn't a lot of fantasy fiction written about honest, trustworthy militiamen working in an honest, trustworthy militia system. Um, but but <sighs> it is a there is a trope and it does it you know it's, it's, it's clearly an archetype you can play. There are a bunch of militia who are uh, make anvil of what it is. Um, and, 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 and there are other archetypes, you know, uh, that, that all stem out of that, that fact that we have a functioning legal system. Uh, just to uh, just to take a, a leaf out of Dave's book there, Matt, you are a Philistine. Uh, yeah. And I suggest that you try and track down Pratchett's Guard series oh, for a reasonably good portrayal of uh, honest, upstanding, uh, law-abiding, good characters in a, in a grey and ambiguous world. Yeah, that would require me to read Pratchett. I'm afraid that's... We need to be careful where we go. We don't want to alienate all of our players. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so we'll move quickly on now, I think. Um, And and the final question I've got for you today. So, obviously, we've set up a campaign world now three years ago, um, and and then players encountered it. Is the campaign going where you expect it to go before we started play? There's, there's an old saying in LARP that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Um, you know, no plans, no plot survives contact with the players. I've never held with that saying. I've always found it superficial. Um, unin- just, just, it doesn't interest me as, as an ideology. Um, I, 
I, I am averse. If I'm writing plot or I'm planning out kind of where things might, what what I what I want to happen in the game, um, or ideas for what can happen in the game, I never, I don't spend two minutes thinking about where it might go. I just don't give it a moment's thought. Um, and I find there's an advantage to that, which is that I'm not then constantly judging the players' efforts of what they have done versus what I either thought they should do, or even worse, what I thought what I thought they would do, or even worse, what I thought they should do. Rather, when I come to look at their actions, I have absolutely a blank slate. I had no idea what they were going to do, or even if there was anything they could do. Um, I, I just... I genuinely throw the cards up in the air and just go, well, let them just land where they land. I, I don't care. Um, you know, uh, this year, or at the end of last year, a big war has kicked off with the Yatoon and the Grendel, uh, the two big empires, uh, foreign barbarian empires to the west and to the south of the, of the empire. Where will that end up? What will happen? I haven't given it a moment's thought. I just genuinely... We we ran a we ran a sequence at event three last year in which most of the barbarians offered opportunities to the empire to to arrange peace treaties with them, uh, and we yeah. went into that with no idea whether the players would take any of them or all of them or none of them. And we had that sort of conceptual discussion. We go, well, what happens if they take none of them? And we go, well, they're all dead. <laughs> um, you know, that's okay. And you, you always sort of, it's always important to run through that because you go, okay, let's imagine, and that's an interesting one. Let's, let's, let's imagine the players had rejected the Thule, rejected the Druze, rejected the Barons, rejected the Lozambrians, rejected the Yatoon, and rejected the Grendel. They said, never mind a war on two fronts, we want a war on six fronts. The, the consequence of that is not hard to work out. Basically, the players would start to lose badly very badly they do not have that the military capacity to fight six nations enemy nations at once uh they would start to lose probably on every front you would expect that within two years the empire would be destroyed that would be my guess and that is plucking a figure from the air the players might might make bad decisions that sped it up they might make good decisions that slow it down but if they were fighting six barbarian forces at once that would be a loss within, I, my guess is about two years. So within two years, the entire empire, entire empire would be destroyed. And then you go, are we cool with that? Yeah, right, okay, fine. Just run the plot, run the plot. You know, Once you're absolutely okay with the world could be destroyed and, and the game could either change out of all recognition or come to an end, cool, just go with it. And then whatever happens. The one that was more exciting from my point of view that we talked about was what happens if they take them all. Yeah, yeah. That if the Empire steps. declares peace, if the Empire compromises oh, yeah. sufficiently to be able to be at peace with everybody. And that was, a, that was, that was another one that would fundamentally change how the game was working. Less, less dramatically. But, for example, the Military Council would face some tough decisions at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of the Empire budget goes on supporting the military. Um, a lot of effort on the field goes into... Uh, tracking down and opposing um, uh, the enemy forces. And, of course, we have those big battles as well. Yeah, yeah. We'd have found a way to cope uh, and, and well, create well, I mean, something. We said at the time, the there is no way that the players are going to stick to that sort of peace treaty. Yeah, yeah, they struggle to stick to players? anything. To the, there are rumours that they are struggling to stick to the one they've actually taken. Um, but, but the point is that... that there's two basically i 
what we didn't do was start going, now, if they take the Yatoom Peace Treaty, this will happen, and then we'll have this happen, and then we'll have this happen. Because it's such a big deal what the players do or don't do that any planning would be wasted anyway. And to, and, and to you know exactly what they have or haven't done with the treaty, you haven't got a clue. The players broke the, the Yatoom Peace Treaty, I think, one or two seasons early, mm. betrayed them and broke the treaty. Strategically, it was brilliant. Gave them a massive jump on the Yatoon. You know, our I mean, Yatoon armies are all on the back foot. And we had no comprehension that they were going to do that. We did I mean, a very, we, we had a nice set piece we'd kind of roughly planned out, for which we obviously can't run now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A whole load of bunch of plot that was kind of, kind of being sketched was like, oh, well, that doesn't now apply. The, the point is that we don't get a big, um, we don't have a big plan of, well, this is where it's going in two years or three years' time. It's just throw everything up in the air. It's the, so write, it's the way we write a plot as well, Yeah. often. What we do try and do, uh, and we, what about the Winds of Fortune again? What we do try and do is where we can, we signpost things the Empire could do and how they might work and sometimes what the repercussions might be. But those are often just very broad strokes. So... The interesting point is, are we, you know, is it going where you thought it would go? And actually, the answer is, we had no idea where it would go. Yeah. But where did I want it to be at this point? I wanted the Empire to have hopefully defeated in war one or two of the barbarian empires to be gaining a little bit of confidence and to start eyeing up a possible new conquest, yeah. not just recapturing lost territories. And beautifully, where they are after three years, they have defeated in war one or two barbarian empires. And there are players eyeing up new conquests and thinking, oh, well, that would be a bit tasty. If you'd said to me anything more, well, which new town corridor, which empires will they have defeated? Which, you know, which uh, territories will they be eyeing up? What I just wouldn't be like, well, why would I even? It's the player's job to play the game. I've never seen it as my job as a plot writer to work out what the possible options are. I just, I, I just consider that a waste of time. Any, anybody who's been looking back will will realise that we are we're in the the legacy line of uh, of Omega, for example, where I understand that some treacherous git blew up half of the people in the last event, brought it to a yep. premature close, and Maelstrom, where we could not shovel out abilities to end the world fast enough. Yeah, yeah, and it was just a race then of who yeah. would who would blow up the world first. Well, uh, I, 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 that kind of plot in Empire, but we're not we're not shy about dealing with the consequences of the things yeah. that we and the players do. I think also so, it, it's worth about the the way the game's been you know designed in the inception about the the onion effect of the fact that we do have the four orc five orc tribes I don't know around us. But then also you've got the foreigners, you've got the barbarians, and eventually there'll be a might be a time where the players defeat the orcs and they'll look to those borders. Oh, oh absolutely! Players yeah. being players, there's no way they will be able to avoid offending somebody. Or there's obviously vicious plants in the middle of our midst. Uh, indeed, vicious plants. There's the Lodnies, There's uh, what do you call the little yellow and green guys? A Feni. There's Feni. Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. There's societies. I like the yellow and green guys. Is your description? When we were drawing up the game, we sketched out sort of here's 10 years of war. 
you know, they, they could fight these guys. That would take two or three years. They could fight, This could be a war. That would take years. This would be... You're kind of just very, very back of the envelope, five minutes, made sure that the world had enough stuff in it that, 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 that the, the players are not going to run out of people to conquer. Well, that was the also, key. We also built in a, a hard driver on this. The Empire is two armies, I think, away from running out of the ability to make new armies. Yeah, unless yeah. they conquer some new territory that is rich and uh, and prosperous enough, and uh, to uh, to let them increase the number of armies they can control. This is not Fraggle Rock. <laughs> no, this is not Fraggle Rock. I want to see the first player commit genocide. Uh, so. Yes, the game is exactly where I thought it would be. It's exactly where I wanted it to be, which is to say I had no idea where it would be, but it would be within the parameters of they'd have fought some wars, they'd have won some battles, they'd have lost some battles, hopefully they'd have kicked somebody's butt, um, and players would be getting ambitious about conquest. Are you are you surprised we don't have a throne yet? Ooh, no. Um I do genuinely do not know if we will ever have a throne. Mm. Um, when the game started, I looked at it and went, "There's no way we'll ever have a throne. It just it won't happen. The the the, the turkeys will never vote for Christmas." Um, and I was absolutely convinced we would never have a throne. Well, we didn't um, have even the, the slightest snifter of interest in it for the first two years. Oh, ah, first, 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 yeah. Yeah. By the end of the first year, there were there were cards on tables. The interesting thing now is we look at at the situation, and I look at it, and and, and me as an outsider thinks the one thing the empire desperately needs at the moment is a throne. It, um, it is so clearly lacking central leadership that that the one thing that would make the difference in all of its wars is having a throne. So actually I look at it now and think I can see the turkeys though in for Christmas because Christmas is coming whether they vote for it or not <laughs> and they might might <laughs> just decide they want the stuffing on the other foot to To be honest, since since I lost the back office sweepstake when Iron Iron Tide Brook died, uh, I'm not really all that interested in the Emperor anymore. <laughs> I'm interested. Um but yeah, I think I think it could happen in the next year or so. Um, Will it change uh, the game a lot, do you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I, well, yes and no. Because um, obviously but, we've not written uh, an absolute ruler into the game, even though we called it Empire. It's really a republic. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, yeah, the, the game is sold on a lie. <laughs> indeed. And, 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 and throughout the game, on all levels, and even among all the foreigners, our, our assumption of the default social structure of the world is that people appoint their own leaders. Yes. Um, so, I think it's going to be fantastically interesting to see if we have got our job right. Uh, if we've got our job wrong, it'll be a bit rubbish when they appoint a throne because the game will be less interesting and less fun to play. If we've got our job right, it will be more interesting and more fun to play. I hope, I believe, we've got the balance right. We've created a position that's very powerful and is clearly brutally unfair in several areas. The throne has powers which are just clearly not fair. Um, but but those powers are hard to access, hard to use. The social costs involved. Let me give you an example. The, the, the throne can go into the military council and pick a single general and throw them out of the council and take control of their army. That's a very powerful ability. You, if you're not happy with the way a nation is contributing to the war effort of the empire, you can simply go in and dispossess 
that nation and one of its armies, take out their most recalcitrant general, and there's nothing that that general can do. Well, I say nothing, but of course they've probably still got one or two other generals in there who also control armies, and now there's nothing you can do to those generals, or virtually nothing. If those generals refuse to play ball with you, if they support the general you've just ousted, suddenly you've got a very, very difficult game to play on as the throne. So you have these powers, but the, but the powers are not... We've talked about this, me and Andy, a lot recently. The powers are not character abilities. It's not like AD&D, where your character can cast a fireball and it does 10d6 damage. That The Synod can revoke someone, but that ability has to be used with incredible care. You've got to assess the political situation of who you're revoking. You can't just go, I have the character ability to revoke you. You no longer have the job. It's a... It, the, the use of the power is political. The consequences that follow from it are political. Every element of what you do is political. So I think we, I think, I hope we've got the balance of the throne right. Um, and I'm really excited about to see what happens to the game if they appoint, if they appoint one. It has repercussions. I'm always amused by the fact that the the people most directly responsible for appointing an emperor, the Senate. I know they don't have the. The, the synod has the final say effectively due to the veto, but the people most responsible for appointing the emperor are also the one who have the most to lose by having one. Yeah. Thanks to the hand of the chancellor and the power of veto, but also a huge amount of gain just because of the way ratification works. Yeah. I think what's going to be fascinating isn't actually the first emperor, it's whether they want a second one. Yeah. <laughs> and how does the first one last? Because you have your first emperor, and then if they're suddenly off, that first emperor dies you know, in a bush somewhere. Um, Navarre. <laughs> cheers for that. Um, I'd like to point out, for the record, they're not all murder monkeys. There's a, they're a very big nation. I think Andy was referring to the setting element where historically the only murder of an emperor has been, was committed by a member of the... I, I was actually just taking the piss out of Dave, but I like the way okay. you've made that... Uh, the only like publicly did. acknowledged murder of an emperor. Or empress. Yes, fair. So far... Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, but yeah, when, well, when, they, when they die, well, they go, well, didn't make much difference. <sighs> Let's just stick to senators in the future. It worked a lot better. Or will they go, oh, no, we, we need another one. What's going to happen? Yeah, I um, think the game would be dramatically improved by somebody who appears to be quite reasonable right until the point where she gets on the throne, at which point her inaugural speech uh, is the Sideshow Bob speech, where she just laughs hysterically for about five minutes. Uh, and then proceeds to use the powers that the emperor has. Oh yeah, that is this um, where we uh, is this where we remind people that they can discuss this podcast at uh, forums.profounddecisions.co.uk. That's exactly where you, you 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 do that. Yes, excellent. I'm expecting at the very least a couple of fellows yeah. from Mark for that. Do we get to do shout outs? Yeah, if you get a quick shout out if you're in if you want, Dave. Anybody want to? Can I just say, go do a quick shout out for the lovely photos from the the, the events over oh, yes. the winter. Oh uh, yes, Beth, Ollie, and Tom. Yeah, they've been amazing. Some of these photos, and it's uh, it's really made my my evening. So I thought I'd just you know for all our brilliant yes. photographers, brilliant. It's. It... I don't know what it is about the uh, sanctioned events. I suspect the fact people are not always in fields and it's not sort of a weekend or whatever, but that you often get some amazing photos at sanctioned events. Mm. Uh, and it is genuinely an absolute pleasure to look at them and, and just just be blown away by how awesome the, the, the kit. And we, the we, could, uh, we, we should probably pay the, uh, the pledge for holding their 
top social <laughs> event of the year a, a month or so before our first event, which produces loads and loads of pictures wearing beautiful costumes. And the Dornish one. Oh, in yeah, their Dornish castle. Their castle. Oh, yes. Yeah. Their castle. I understand you're, you two are both running player events as well, probably after this podcast goes live. Uh, Too late um, to rate VR. It, yeah. You've got uh, a castle as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah we are in fact running our events on the same weekend, unfortunately. So people should uh, can show which which one of the two of you they value more by how many players turn up to your event. <laughs> uh, Honestly, we should just stop. I'm just doing a bit now. <laughs> Cheers, Andy. You uh, uh, Well, I mean, I've got Matt Pennington coming to mind. I'm not sure whether that uh, no, uh, no, but I, I don't have Matt Pennington coming to mind. But I do happen to have Beth and Ollie at mine to take photos. To be honest, Matt is a mixed blessing. Yeah, and he's not very good at photos, so I'm I'm probably <laughs> stuffed. Also, um, briefs, but that's a personal bugbear which there's no need to talk about. And I think we'll call an end to um, the podcast bye. right there. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye. One more